The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. As you no doubt caught, today's passage deals directly with depression and anxiety. So let's talk about anxiety. Sigmund Freud once wrote, There is no question that the problem of anxiety is a riddle whose solution would be bound to throw a floodlight on our entire mental existence. In our culture, the health and wealth movement has made effort to prescribe medication, which, though potentially somewhat helpful, can also cause harmful addictive problems and can fail to actually guard our heart and mind. Personal attention and mindfulness, while becoming increasingly popular, have not been able to solve the struggles that people have. But if there's one thing that the mental health and wellness movement and Sigmund Freud have correctly put their finger on, it's this. The world includes many inducements to anxiety. The world is broken. The world is fallen. We know the world is under the curse of sin. Now, our experiences may differ. But the truth is, we are more alike than different. We can all understand the temptation to anxiety and depression. I know I can personally attest to this struggle in my own life. If we're being candid and not just spinning a public image, we can all relate to this struggle. So what is anxiety? I'll share some cliff notes from researchers that I've been listening to. There's first what we might call normal anxiety. Normal anxiety is good anxiety. It's what keeps you from crossing a busy street. It's what enables you to realize something dangerous is about to happen. It's temporary, and then it subsides, and it spurs good planning and action. But then there's what researchers call problem anxiety. Problem anxiety lingers. It may last for months. You may not even be really sure where it came from. To help you understand the difference, imagine you and your young children are crossing a street and you have the right of way, but then suddenly someone turns on your crossing path and they're going very fast. Good anxiety causes you to pick up your children and run out of the way. But imagine six months later, you keep reliving that moment and you live in constant fear, even in your bedroom, that it could happen again. That's problem anxiety. A synonym for problem anxiety would be worry. In our culture, we use these kind of phrases to describe problem anxiety. Burnout, depression, inability to move forward. According to the research that I've read, two people groups tend to be most affected by worry or problem anxiety. The first, according to those in this field of research, is the youngest generations among us, those who are currently growing up in our homes. Um, I'll try to explain why that might be. When I was growing up, my mom made me suffer by watching Anne of Green Gables with her. (laughs) If you don't know what Anne of Green Gables is, Anne is this little girl who grows up in the fictional town of Avonlea. Yes, I know more than any man should. (laughs) It's on Prince Edward Island in in Canada, and the, the story is set in the late 1800s. Now, Anne has all these horrible times at school because she is an adopted orphan and people tease her and they're miserable to her. But then Anne is able to do something that our teenagers today can't do normally. 
Anne runs home and can go to her room and close the door and nobody's there. But our young children and teenagers today tend to, on their cell phone, bring their tormentors into their very bedroom. Therefore, they never escape the anxiety that ails them. Therefore, those in this field note that the youngest people living today tend to have the highest anxiety, especially social anxiety, because they're not used to resolving problems face to face. Now, the second group in our country that tends to have the most anxiety and depression are the oldest people living among us. Why would that be? I think in part it's because they've lived long enough to know how much there is to be anxious about. And as you age, something becomes clearer and clearer to you, what you cannot control, what you cannot actually cause to happen in a way that you once thought you maybe could. Now, anxiety in our culture accelerates through many accelerants that add fuel to the flame. The constant 24-hour news cycle is one of those accelerants. Having technology hitched to us at all times is surely one of those accelerants. But the damage of anxiety is worse than we may even realize. The The University of Harvard, which has a penchant for putting their finger on something several thousand years after Jesus already said it. (laughs) Did some research and found that there's physiological ailments and physical disorders that happen related to anxiety. 40 million Americans were tested as having anxiety. Two-thirds of them were women. And Harvard pointed out that the disorders that come with anxiety are often pain, nausea, weakness, dizziness that have no apparent physical cause The disorder at some cases can cause to premature death. Now, Jesus said this over 2,000 years ago in Matthew 6 when he said, which of you through worry can add an hour to your life? One of my friends at our church in Michigan used to say, Pastor Josh, worry is like a rocking chair. You can spend a lot of time there, but you don't go anywhere. (laughs) And that reminder is something that Jesus is talking about here. But fear is something that's part of our very primal existence. I've had the, I'm not sure if I should use the word blessing, I've had the experience of being in the delivery room when all four of my children were were born. What's the first thing you hear a baby do when they come into our presence? They they cry. Of course, why? They're like, I just came from a place with walls, and I don't know where I am now. Why are all these people poking me? Who are you? Who are you? And what are you doing to me right now? All of this change is happening that nobody expects. The most primal thing that we first do when we're born is we experience fear. And from that fear, we worry. This is endemic to very human existence. And in fact, if we're speaking honestly, that primal fear we have from the moment of birth continues as we loomingly face death. So can God help us from our anxiety Praise the Lord. The answer is yes. In today's passage, we're going to see Paul advocating not irresponsible escapism. You can get that at any local place around here. Nor Pollyanna-like optimism, where you're just meditating and trying to ignore the realities around you. No, God promises something infinitely more wonderful. Now, in today's sermon, I'm going to do something that might be a bit frustrating, so I'll tell you up front. First, I'm going to give you the principles... And then at the end of the sermon, I'm going to give you the power 
to give joy and peace. All right? Principles first, power at the end. Now the principles. If you have the notes that I sent you, we're looking under part one, joy. And we're going to look at always joyful. Look in Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The Bible includes many passages that are hard to understand. But then it includes passages that are easy to understand, but they seem very hard to live. In Philippians 2, verse 14, we read, Do everything without grumbling and complaining. Very easy to understand. Very difficult to live. Today's verse, rejoice always. Very easy to understand. Very difficult to live. How can anyone always be joyful? Perhaps it helps if we understand the difference between what we tend to now call emotions versus what were historically referred to as affections. Let me try and explain the difference between those. Emotions are those surface level reactions that may not have anything to do with your internal being in person. For example, some people are just smiley by personality and disposition. That's not the same as the joy that's being referred to here in verse 4. That can come and that can go and the things going on around us can come and go. But this passage is talking about joy that's not seasonal or circumstantial or dispositional but that is ever available. How is that possible? We first have a clue in the grammar. The word rejoice, it's an imperative command. And it occurs again as an imperative command. Even if we only were reading it in English, we could tell, okay, somehow there is joy that we can have come that goes deeper than the way I feel, since it's something that would bring along my feelings. This is what in history was known as the affections. Jonathan Edwards is most helpful on this point. Emotions are fleeting. They're superficial. They can be easily manipulated, just put on music. They can be overpowered, and they can be disconnected from the mind and the will. But affections are long-lasting. They're deep, and they're rooted in a transcendent truth. And though they will include the way we feel, they're much bigger and broader than that. This is... Why Paul can say something shocking in 2 Corinthians 6. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says this, I've endured affliction, hardship, calamity, beating, imprisonment, riot, labor, sleepless nights, and hunger. Talk about challenge. And then here's what he says in verse 10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How can you be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing? The answer is because affections are stronger than emotions. Affections are rooted in a transcendent truth that can steer and guide and even shape your emotions. Let me give you an example. Imagine a college student leaves their hometown, goes across the state, and begins in the fall their new semester. And while they're in their dorm room, away from their home and their family and everything that's been comfortable to them, they suddenly emotionally feel sad, lonely, missing the people that they're not with. But most college students will do this. They will remain in school. They will push through that freshman fear and they will later be very thankful for the school they graduated from. How did that happen? How did they have sorrow and loneliness and yet stay? Because they had a transcendent affection. This is where I need to be. This is actually good for me. This is something worth investing in. 
You see, the Bible actually does the same thing in James 4. Remember when it says, or sorry, James 1. Consider it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various temptations and trials. Why would we consider it joy when we're in trial? Because we know a transcendent truth of what that joy is rooted in. The next verse says, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you can be complete, lacking nothing. Much like the college student matriculating to a new environment, God tells the Christian, don't give in to the emotional sorrow of the trial because there is a joy rooted in what it's producing. There's a transcendent truth. The affection overrides and shapes the emotion. Affections can override our fleeting emotions. Therefore, it is possible to always be joyful even when we're sorrowful in our feeling. Also, it can override our demeanor. So look now in verse 5. It's something of a delicious oxymoron here. The Bible says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In other words, be known for your gentleness. Let me give some translation background real quick. It's a pay case. That's the word translated by the ESV, reasonableness. But by the NASB, it's translated gentle spirit. By the NIV, it's translated gentleness. By the net, gentleness. And by the CSB, graciousness. The word means to be gentle. Isn't that interesting? Be known for being self-effacing. <laughs> be recognized for being gentle. It's not the way we normally think in our culture. In our culture, we're normally thought that forcefulness is the only way to get things done. For a while, I managed at a Target. And at Target for certain evenings, I would oversee customer service and exercise in gentleness. <laughs> People return things that they want refunds for. I remember one evening, a woman came in with her son and said that she bought a brand new bike and the bike didn't work, so she just wanted to return it and get her money back for it. And it was the end of a long day and I was not in the best mood I've ever been in. <laughs> and then she showed me the bike and the tires were bald. It had been nicked everywhere. That bike had been written for more miles than most of our bikes have ever been used, and I knew she was lying. And here's the opportunity. Now, most of us have maybe been taught might makes right. Hey, sometimes you have to be a jerk to get people to deal fairly with you. Hey, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. It's not personal, it's business. Hey, it's sports, you're supposed to be competitive. We are taught through messaging all throughout our culture that we don't need to be gentle, really. Sometimes you just need to roll up your sleeves and get things done. But in fact, when the Bible told us what Jesus would be like in Isaiah, it said this, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. The point is, even something that has barely any strength or life, he won't blow over, even though he has all the strength in the universe. This text tells us that a believer, because of a transcendent trust in truth in our God, should similarly be known for our gentleness. Regardless of what the situation is, or what the temptations are. I'm giving you principles the power is going to come at the end. All right, first principle, always be joyful because our affections are bigger and longer and shape our emotions. Second principle, be known for your gentleness. But that's the section on joy. Now let's look at the section on peace, which was just very well sung for us. 
Verse 6. Do not allow sinful worry about anything. Look in verse 6. Do not be anxious. That is problem anxiety about anything. Oftentimes our anxieties are based in what could happen. I heard a humorous story that illustrated this well. The story goes that there was a woman who had been having trouble sleeping at night for years because she constantly feared that a burglar would break into their home. And one night, they heard a noise downstairs, and the husband went downstairs, and lo and behold, a burglar had broken into their home. And he went up to the burglar and said this, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Wait here for a moment. My wife's been waiting for you for over 10 years. (laughs) It's a good reminder how sometimes our fears are based on what might potentially happen. One person said it this way, I've had a lot of trouble in my life. None of it actually occurred, though. (laughs) On a serious note, though, we know that problem anxiety is not only based on what could happen, but it can enslave us in the present and hamper our ability to enjoy the goodness that God has for us. Now, praise God, the verse does not stop at do not worry, because then our only response would be to worry about not worrying. But praise God, the verse gives the solution right away. So now verse two, or sorry, the end of verse six, point number two, instead pray about everything. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, pray In everything by prayer and supplication, and this part's very important, with thanksgiving. That will change your heart more than anything else. Let your requests be made known to God. D.A. Carson writes, I have yet to meet a chronic worrier who has an excellent prayer life. This verse tells us the truth of something that sounds too good to be true. Imagine a back to the future type of situation where you brought a car back to a pre-industrial revolution era. You had an automobile at a time where people only rode horses. And somebody came over to your vehicle and lifted up the hood and saw all these complex machinations connecting with one another. And they went underneath and saw the exhaust pipe and they noticed all this machinery. And they thought, what would it take to get this thing started? And then they were incredulous when you showed them a key and an ignition. That's all it takes to get this thing started? Yes. When we read a verse like this, I think the first reaction we have is doubt. God? No, I'm not sure you're really telling the truth here. You can take away anxiety through prayer. There's got to be more to it. What's the trick? Let me look under the hood. Maybe there's some other connection that you didn't tell me about. But here actually is a key from God for bringing every anxiety and seeing it reshaped to peace. That promise is one that our Lord has made. Notice the ways he tells us to pray in verse 6. To pray with petition, that is supplication, and request. That means specific concerns. I did this this morning. Driving here, praying about very specific things that are giving me anxiety and asking God to please work in them and work through them. Now here's what God says he will do when we do that. Look in verse seven. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding. No, that's not possible. I can't imagine that's possible. Yes, it is. Gloriously, the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Those of you who've been believers, haven't you experienced this? Haven't you ever been overwhelmed with a problem and you went to your prayer closet and brought it to the Lord and sometime later you come out with a total change of heart about it? What had been freezing you, you almost have forgotten of. What had been overwhelming you, you've now cast off. This is an experience that God gives in His grace. And it's one that we need. Because God didn't make us like machines. We're humans. When something distressing is going on in our life, we feel distressed. When something frightening is going on, we feel fearful. When we feel hopeless, maybe our health or our finances or a relationship feels hopeless, we feel despair. When things are out of our control, we feel anxious. Stephen Runge writes, the only peace, the peace that only God could bring, the kind that surpasses all understanding, does something incredible. Just like rejoicing is a safeguard, God's peace will guard your heart and mind against anxiety creeping back in. Meaning that through prayer, God gives peace that acts like a guardian alarm, like a security dog that scares away the recurrence of that anxiety and fear. But the truth is, if we think about it, our anxieties and fears that tend to be on a surface level are actually scratching at something much deeper than we might normally realize. When we have social anxiety, I don't know how I fit in with these people or if they'll accept me if they truly got to know me. It reveals we're afraid, what if we were fully known? Would we be truly loved? When we have economic anxiety, I don't know if I'm going to have the funds for this. I can't picture how this is going to work out. It actually is getting at something deeper. We're concerned about security for a future. When we have anxiety over our character, did I do enough? Can I be enough? Have I taken care of everything I'm supposed to? It reveals something much deeper. We worry whether or not we could actually achieve what we think we need to achieve. Do you know how those anxieties have actually been purchased? Those surface longings are rooted in something much deeper that has been purchased, and they're explained in Isaiah 53. There was a promised person who would come like a root out of a dry ground without form or majesty to look at or beauty to be desired. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You think you've experienced sorrow. You think you fear rejection. Here's someone who actually experienced all of it. He was a despised and we esteemed him not. But notice verse 4 of Isaiah 53 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The very promises of Philippians 4, joy and peace, 
overcome the anxieties that we fear. Rejection, exposure, and failure. The rejection, failure, and exposure that we fear, Jesus bore. And the problems that we are so afraid of occurring, He put in His body and nailed them to the cross and rose victoriously over them. His chastisement is the reason we can have peace. So if the principles are always be joyful, be known for being gentle, do not worry, instead pray, peace will come, what's the power for them? The answer is grammatically speaking, literally in the middle of today's passage. Will you look for it? Look in Philippians 4. What's in the middle of verses 4, 5, 6, and 7? Last week I only preached three verses, this week I'm only preaching four. What's right in the middle? The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Do you know that that phrase is not referring to the eternal return of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ? No, no, it means the Lord is with you. That's the power for joy no matter the circumstances. That's the power for peace no matter the fear. That's the power for anxiety to dissipate. The Lord is near. See, one of the interesting things about anxiety is the feeling that you're alone and that no one can relate and that no one could understand. But the Lord says, he's near. The presence of the Lord is the power for joy and peace that perseveres circumstances. The presence of the Lord is what we experience when we go to him. Think of how many times this happens in Scripture. Let me give you one of the most well-known ones. The 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Think of Hebrews 13. Keep yourself free from the love of money or the fear of your finances. Be content with what you have. Why? Because he has said... I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The principles in this passage are powerless were it not for the ever-abiding presence of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want you to think about your anxieties and your fears. They're scratching at something deeper than anything in this world. They're scratching at who you are in relationship to your Creator. If you've not yet put your faith in Christ, if you've not turned from your sin and come to the Lord, this passage tells you that God's presence is ready for you when you come to Him. That's why Christ could say, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and gentle in heart. See, Christ will carry the greatest burden, the burden of our sin. Bring it to Him and be saved this morning. But if you're here in a believer and you're struggling with anxiety and discouragement, don't let the world tell you that you're a diagnosis. You're not a diagnosis. You're a brother and sister in Christ who God loves and who He will not leave and whose presence is experienced when we're with Him and when we're with each other and when we pray. So let's do that this morning. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer.
Dear God, I pray that you would give us eyes of faith. Humanly speaking, what we're reading in this passage sounds impossible. It sounds false. In fact, we might be tempted to think that our culture has a better answer than you do. But the truth is, they don't. And it shouldn't take much observation to realize that. We cannot fix our hearts. We cannot give ourselves joy. We cannot give ourselves peace. The only power for that is the presence of Jesus Christ, who is the living hope, who is the peace of God, and who bears our anxieties and sorrows on Him. But may we remember from Isaiah 53 what the cost of that was. We fear being exposed, and Jesus was fully exposed. We fear being rejected, and he was rejected by everyone. We fear pain, and he experienced all of it. We fear loneliness, and he chose to be alone so that we could never be alone. This morning, Lord, perhaps someone listening needs to realize that the only solution is to leave their sin and to run to Christ and to take him as their Lord and Savior. But for those of us, Lord, who do know the Lord, help us to remember that you have not left us. And we need to discipline ourselves to bring everything to you in prayer and to trust that your peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.